upper left corner of the United States is full of stunning scenery. Beautiful mountains, raging rivers, breathtaking valleys, and so much more. But the Pacific Northwest is also known for something more sinister. This beautiful land also seems to be a breeding ground for serial killers and others who commit heinous acts. I was born in the Pacific Northwest, and I've had a fascination with true crime since childhood. I'm here to tell you the true crime stories of the PNW. So grab your sweater and a cup of coffee. I'm your host, Emily, and this is The Upper Left Corner. For this story, we're throwing it way back. This saga made page one headlines from 1903 to 1907, when it ended with multiple murders. When he emerged from prison, he said his name was Elijah, and he claimed that he was Jesus Christ risen from the dead. So you can check claiming to be Jesus on your, is this a cult scorecard? Content warning. The following program may contain descriptions of violence and or sexual assault that may be upsetting to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This episode, I'll be telling you about the Bride of Christ Church cult. But first, I have some podcast housekeeping. My regular listeners have probably noticed I haven't released an episode in a while. I've been having a hard time balancing my family, work, and podcast life, and so I decided to take a step back from the podcast, kind of reevaluate, and what I realized is that I absolutely love doing the podcast, and I really appreciate my listeners, and I want to keep making content for you, um, especially people who have listened to all my episodes, people who have bought my merch, because I really enjoy this, and it's an outlet for me, but in the fall, in September, I got a phone call asking if I would be interested in subbing at my kids' school, and I agreed to doing that. My youngest was going into kindergarten. They're all at the same elementary school. And so I said, sure, and that ended up turning into a regular job. So now I work school hours, and it's wonderful, and I love it, but it is definitely going from a stay-at-home mom for 11 years to now a working mom has been an interesting transition and I'm just kind of finding my footing with that and being a mom of three and a wife and and having this podcast which I love. So I will still be releasing episodes. They will not be on a regular schedule. So I'm hoping for at least once a month, twice if you're lucky or you know it's summer break. And uh, I just really appreciate my listeners that are sticking with me through this. And hopefully Upper Left Corner continues to grow and we can see where we, where we go from here. So again, thank you listeners. So let's get to our PNW town profile. Corvallis, Oregon is home to Oregon State University. And as of the 2010 census had a population of just under 55,000. In October, 1845, 
Joseph C. Avery arrived in Oregon from the east, taking out a claim on the land. He built a poorly constructed cabin to hold his place in what seemed to be a potentially lucrative land claim. It wasn't long before he was joined by other settlers and a township was underway. However, the gold rush in California in 1848 stalled the efforts considerably, as many of the settlers, including Avery, went to California to try their hand at mining. Avery returned after a few months with some provisions and decided to open a store. In 1849, the store was opened. The land was platted, and the community was named Marysville. But five years later, a petition was presented to change the name of the city to either Thurston or Valena. Meanwhile, Salem was petitioning to be changed to Corvallis, which is Latin for heart of the valley. While a third petition was then presented to change Marysville to Corvallis. This caused a heated debate, but Marysville was ultimately awarded the name of Corvallis on December 20, 1954. They won the argument that the name Marysville was confusing to those on the wagon trail, as there was also a Marysville in California on the trail. Corvallis was then in contention to become the capital of the Oregon Territory, but eventually Salem was selected in 1855. Corvallis was officially incorporated in 1857. Today, Oregon State University is one of the major local employers, along with Samaritan Health Services and HP. In 2008, Fortune Small Business ranked Corvallis number 48 of the 100 best places in the U.S. to live and launch a business. Other Oregon cities that made the list were Portland at number 6, Bend number 87, and Eugene number 96. And now on to our story. For this story, we're throwing it way back. This saga made page one headlines from 1903 to 1907 when it ended with multiple murders. But we start in 1903, when Franz Edmund Crefield arrived in the Portland area as a German immigrant around the year 1903 at the age of 33. He began working with the Salvation Army as a captain when he was sent on a mission to Corvallis, Oregon. Before long, the charming man broke ties with the Salvation Army, stating they weren't holy enough. And he started his own ministry, bringing many of his fellow Salvation Army soldiers with him. He dubbed his new congregation the Bride of Christ Church. Crefield's ministry was not outrageous at first. His beliefs were not abnormal, and he mostly preached about the beauty of the full gospel. But it wasn't long before he had his followers believing that he was receiving messages from God. His services became longer, often lasting hours, and eventually the services included his followers loudly rolling on the floor asking for God's forgiveness. This caught the attention of many locals, and the rumors began to swirl about what exactly was going on with the church. People started to view the group as a cult and nicknamed them the Holy Rollers because of their dramatic way of worship. It didn't go unnoticed that many of the members were women, and not just any women. These were the wives and daughters of prominent members of the community who had originally explored the church with their families but stayed despite objections from their father or husband. The women were known to be upstanding citizens in the community and God-fearing women, but according to news sources, the services by this point included rolling around on the floor nearly nude and even sexual acts happening at the services in front of other members, including children. 
Crefield told the women that one of his female followers was to be the mother of the second coming of Christ, and that every woman needed to be purified in order for that to happen by having sex with Crefield. When the meetings began running all night and into the early morning hours, with the sound of screaming and wailing disrupting the neighbors through the night, the city of Corvallis barred him from holding his services within the city limits. This had caused Crefield, who was using the pseudonym Joshua, to gather his followers out on Kiger Island in the Willamette River. They camped out there all summer. He implemented a dress code, which was a cloth robe that was nowhere near the modesty standards at the time. This living situation was no longer tenable when the fall rain started, at which point one of the most dedicated followers named Sarah Hurt invited him and about 20 others to move into her house on the outskirts of Corvallis. Sarah had shared the home with her husband, O.V., and three children, Maud, Frank, and May. Most of the followers by this point were women who had started attending the church as a family with their husbands or fathers, who quickly decided that the church was not for them, but the women and girls who stayed were commanded to break ties with their families to follow Crefield. He told the women that they did not need marriage in their lives. In October, the group burned most of the contents of the house, including furniture, utensils, heirlooms, and most unfortunately, the family pets. There had been reports that a baby had been sacrificed in the fire, but all involved in the cult denied such an incident ever occurred. In classic cult fashion, the leader demanded that his followers cut off all contact with anyone outside the group, especially family. Outsiders were skeptical of Crefield, especially since he was living in the same house with a number of young girls and did not have any other purpose in life other than religion. Ovi had enough, as his wife and children were devout to Crefield, and he unsuccessfully attempted to kick the group out of his house. In January 1904, 20 vigilantes called the Whitecaps tarred and feathered Crefield and told him to leave town and never come back. It absolutely shocked the town when the following day he married Maud Hurt, the daughter of O.V. and Sarah Hurt. Another mob formed, this time carrying a rope, but Crefield escaped on the run and Maud was soon moving back in with her parents. But just a month later, Crefield was accused of committing adultery in Portland with a woman named Donna Starr, who happened to be Maud's aunt. Crefield and the woman engaged in a purification ritual, and her husband, Burgess Starr, filed a criminal complaint of adultery. Press accounts speculated that Donna was one of about 10 to 15 women and girls whose participation as a bride of Christ meant consummating a physical relationship with Crefield. As adultery was a criminal offense at the time, a warrant was put out for his arrest, and a statewide search went on for months. As this was taking place, his followers fasted and spent their days praying on the floor and ended with many of them being committed to either the Oregon State Insane Asylum or the Boys and Girls Aid Society in Portland for those who were underage. In June, Sarah Hurt was forcibly removed from her home and committed, and one month later, a naked and starving Crefield was discovered under her house. Her 14-year-old son had gone under the house to look for worms to go fishing, and much to his and his father's surprise, Crefield had been living there for months, and Sarah and other members had been providing him food and water up until the time they were committed. He pled innocent to the adultery charge, but was found guilty and served 17 months in the Oregon State Penitentiary. 
We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. And now back to the story. When he emerged from prison, he said his name was Elijah, and he claimed that he was Jesus Christ risen from the dead. So you can check claiming to be Jesus on your Is This a Cult scorecard. He also claimed to be responsible for the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, and his followers believed him. The majority of his followers had just been released from their respective asylums, and they obeyed his order when he told them that Corvallis would be destroyed and they needed to evacuate to the coast. At this point, the group relocated to Waldport, Oregon, and many of the women and girls who had returned to their families after their stays at the various mental hospitals flocked back to Creffield, which infuriated husbands, fathers, and brothers. Cora Hartley and her young daughter Sophie were two of the followers who moved to Waldport, but they were also followed by Cora's husband, Lewis, and his pistol. At the train station, he pointed and pulled the trigger four times at Creffield, but the gun clicked harmlessly, as the gun had been loaded with the wrong kind of bullets. This was the first failed assassination attempt, but Lewis was only one of several men setting out to bring harm to the cult leader. One of the most scorned was a man by the name of George Mitchell. Two of his sisters were followers, Esther Mitchell and Donna Mitchell Starr, who you will remember being very publicly shamed during the trial after her husband had claimed adultery. George began planning a way to avenge the honor of his sisters and to prevent them from being further exploited. He learned of Creffield's plan for a trip to Seattle and began looking for him. When George spotted him walking down the street with his wife Maud, he shot him in the back of the head, killing Creffield instantly. George's sister Esther was furious with her brother and rushed to Seattle. She and Maud began living together under the custodial eye of a police matron, who was on the lookout for any plans the ladies may have had to exact revenge. The police matron confiscated a gun from Maud, and subsequently a second gun she later purchased to replace the first weapon. O.V. Hurt also came to Seattle to comfort his now-widowed daughter and help George Mitchell find the best criminal defense team. Well-wishers from Oregon provided the $650 fee to hire Morris, Southard, and Shipley, who were known to be one of the top firms in the area. The Seattle Post-Intelligencer expressed concern over vigilante justice. The Seattle Times editorialized that if Creffield was really as manipulative as he was said to be, George Mitchell deserved to be released immediately. At trial, the official defense was temporary insanity. The defense called witnesses who discussed how they had disclosed unsavory details of the cult's sexual practices to George Mitchell, including details about his sisters, which had driven him insane. O.V. Hurt took the stand and implied that his wife and daughter May, not Maude, who was his wife, had sex with Creffield, who was their son and brother-in-law, respectively. His tearful testimony was followed by that of Burgess Starr, who was married to George's sister, Donna. He claimed to have told George that the cult had attempted to spring Esther from the Oregon Boys and Girls Home during the time there to turn her over to Creffield for the purposes of bringing forth a second Christ. George Mitchell collapsed in sobs on the defense table. After closing arguments, the jury was handed the case at 3.14 p.m. and returned with their verdict at 4.45. George Mitchell was found not guilty by reason of insanity and was free to go. A few days later, on July 12th, George and his brother Perry went to the train station to head back to Oregon. The day prior, their brother Fred had begged Esther to patch things up with her brother. So George was happy to see that she had come to the train station to see him off. 
The siblings shook hands, and as the four siblings walked towards the platform, Fred offered to take the coat Esther was wearing on her arm, and as he went to grab the coat, a gun was revealed under it. Esther shot George from behind, aiming for the same spot he had shot Creffield. Within minutes, George had bled out in the train station and was dead at the age of 23. The murder weapon belonged to Maude Creffield, who did not deny this to police. She and Esther expressed no remorse. Maude's long-suffering father, O.V. Hurt, once again arranged a defense team for both women. The police chief was, was quoted in the Post-Intelligencer, complaining, I wish these Oregon people would kill each other on their side of the river. Judge Archibald Frater, who had presided over the Mitchell trial, proposed the formation of an insanity commission to evaluate the women before trial, which would save taxpayers the expense of another trial if they were found insane. The prosecutor resisted, but the judge moved forward with the Sanity Commission, a team that included his personal physician and a young man just a year out of med school, none of whom were specialists in what at the time were called nervous diseases. Critics believed that the judge had sought out commission members who would agree to declare the women insane, and in the end, they did declare both women were delusional and dangerous. The judge ordered that they be deported to the Oregon State Insane Asylum in Salem under a statute that allowed him to do this, but the state Supreme Court ruled that Judge Frater had no authority to do this. While matters were being sorted, Maude Crefield had strychnine smuggled into the county jail and killed herself. Her father knew of her wishes to be buried next to her husband, so he arranged for Crefield's remains to be moved from his original plot to be buried next to the one he had bought for Maude. Esther was sent to the Washington State Asylum at Stylacum. She was released two years later in 1909 after being declared cured. The asylum personnel said she was thoroughly disgusted with herself, and upon release, Ovi Hurt entered the picture once more and took her into his home as a guardian. Five years down the road, Esther was living in Waldport, Oregon as a newlywed. She appeared to be living a happy life with her husband of three months when she, like Maud, took strychnine and died at the age of 26. The cult itself died with Creffield, although a small group of members, many of whom were related, did stay together, and like Esther, moved to Waldport where they intermarried and had children. A half century later, in 1975, two strangers came to Waldport and scheduled a meeting at the Bayshore Inn to discuss religious beliefs. Out of the 700 people living in Waldport, 100 people attended the meeting. Following the presentation, attendees were encouraged to shed their worldly belongings and follow the two strangers to Colorado to meet a spaceship. Twenty people of Waldport did just that, including a couple who left behind infant children. These people were early, possibly even the first recruits of the Heaven's Gate cult, whose members eventually committed mass suicide more than 20 years later in 1997 when the Haley Bop comet came close to Earth. It is unknown if any of those who left Waldport that day were descendants of the Holy Rollers. And that is the story of the Bride of Christ Church. This episode's wine that I paired with my true crime, we're headed back to Lopez Island Vineyard. My mother-in-law recently visited and bought me a bottle of their Seagarib for Christmas. 
This precocious German variety produces an exotic, aromatic wine with notes on the palate of lychee and grapefruit. Finishing crisp, medium dry, with a hint of spice. This wine is best paired with Asian food. Cheers and thanks for listening. Upper Left Corner, a PNW True Crime podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a five-star rating and review and share it with a friend. All of the sources for this episode are listed in the show notes and at upperleftpodcast.com. While you are there, check out the Support Victim Causes tab to find the way you can help the victim's families or take a peek at my merch. You can follow me on Instagram at upperleftcornerpod. If you have a case suggestion or a PNW wine recommendation, please email me at upperleftpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.